Hello, fellow innovators. This is Patrick Emmons. Welcome to the Innovation and the Digital Enterprise Podcast, where we interview successful visionaries and leaders, giving you an insight into how they drive and support innovation within their organizations. We are very excited to have John Kett on the show today. John is the CEO of IAA. IAA is a leader in the global vehicle marketplace. Whether it's a car, truck, or specialty vehicle, IAA extends this marketplace to almost any destination worldwide. John rose to the position of CEO in May 2014 after serving in a variety of executive roles at IAA. In June 2019, he led IAA through the process of becoming an independent public company. Also in 2019, IAA generated $1.4 billion in revenue and sold more than 2.5 million vehicles through its platform. IAA is a global leader in technology innovation, analytics, and operational execution. Additionally, John also sits on the National Board of Directors for Skills USA and the Northern Illinois University Board of Executive Advisors. John is an active member of the Economic Club of Chicago. And prior to joining IAA, John held senior financial roles at Central Steel and Wire Company and Safelight Glass Corporation, Newark Electronics, and Deloitte. He completed his MBA at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwest University and holds a Bachelor of Science from Northern Illinois University. He uh, lives in Elmhurst and uh, married and has four kids. So welcome to the show, John. Thank you, Patrick. Great to be here. John, if you don't mind, kick us off by sharing a little bit about your role as Chief Executive Officer at IAA and a little bit about the history and, and what's going on with IAA, if you don't mind. Absolutely. Uh, happy to do it. You know, my role is to take down barriers to success, right? My job is really to look at the organization. we got a bunch of really talented people that are passionate about the business and they bring a lot of ideas. And my job is to get them working well together so that we can drive our business forward. We've got a, a great company with nearly 4,000 employees across the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. It's my privilege to lead them. Really, I really do appreciate the opportunity that I've had. It's been a great journey for me. About 19, just over 19 years with the company. I've seen us grow from a small public company into private to becoming a subsidiary of a, of a bigger company. And now to spin back out on our own as an independent uh, company has really been exciting and, and rewarding uh, through my career. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's, we're in a, we're in a, we're a, a strong company in a, in a great position, I believe. It's a very unique industry. Uh, it's, I think it's a very Midwestern kind of industry, right? There's, there's a lot of types of organizations like IAA here in Chicago that I don't think get recognized. But I think one of the things that's most interesting about your organization is how much you're leveraging technology in a space that historically it didn't exist there. Could you tell us a little bit about how that got started, how that's had an impact, and, and how you see that affecting the future of IAA and, and the industry? Yeah, great. And it is, we are an interesting business. I mean, I, I tell people all the time, I didn't know this industry existed until I came to work here, right? Because we're a, very much a B2B uh, business. So there's not a lot of consumer knowledge of it. But the, the other really interesting, interesting thing to me about us is that we do have a physical product. You know, we're selling vehicles uh, and other, other types of specialty equipment. 
So there's a tangible product there, but really the way that we do it is leveraging technology. We're, we're effectively a technology business that happens to sell uh, damaged and high mileage vehicles. And and we have this marketplace that, that we talked about at the outset. And that, to me, that's the most fascinating thing to me about it. I'm not really a car guy. I, you know, I drive a car, but I'm not passionate about cars. But what's always drawn me to this business is the notion of this marketplace where we're, you know, buyers from all over the world bidding and really helping insurance companies and other providers understand what the value of their vehicles are. And we've got this robust marketplace to help create that. And the, the data, the analytics, the thought that goes into it is really fascinating to me, along with, again, the wonderful people that we have on Team IA. That's awesome. I, it's, it's a pretty interesting background as, as the organization was started in, in Southern California, I believe yeah, you told me. Yeah, 1984 in Southern California. You know, the, the, the industry really was made up of a lot of independent, you know, we call them mom and pop. There really were family-run businesses that pooled vehicles together on behalf of insurance companies and and ran these auctions to try and help the insurance companies mitigate their claims. And so IEA began to acquire other independent businesses. And then they made, a, for, at the time, a pretty significant acquisition uh, in Chicago. So they moved the headquarters from, from Southern California to Chicago. Uh, that's when the company went, first went public in the mid-90s and um, you know really began to grow both organically and through acquisition because what our customers were telling us as insurance companies became more centralized and started thinking about things at a more regional or national level they were looking for partners who could who could support them across wide geographies and so that's really where a company like ours was able to begin to build out a network build out technology to support them on a on a wider uh, scale one of the things that really blew me away was uh, the footprint. John, how many facilities do you have? We have over 200 facilities across the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. And then we've got buyers in 170 countries. So, yeah, the footprint, again, we've grown it substantially organically. We've added locations as we've grown and as we've seen prospects for growth. And then we have done a fair amount of M&A as well to roll up some of the smaller independent or regional providers. It's a fascinating part of our business as well. So we've got vehicles, tangible vehicles we're selling. We've got this technology that we're really a leader in, but then the real estate portfolio that we manage is also significant because we need to park these cars. That's a fundamental part of our value proposition is that if you think about when a vehicle's in an accident and it gets declared a total loss, there's a period of time under which the claim needs to get settled. And then there's another period of time where we need to get the title to the vehicle, the original title, because each state has their own rules about how a total loss vehicle can be sold. So that's, again, a value that we offer is then we take that original title, we work with the DMVs of the various states to get it on a branded or a salvage title. Again, each state has different rules. And then we run it through our marketplace. So we need real estate to store and protect these vehicles during that time that, that we're resolving all the things we need to effectively sell it. Yeah, when it first heard 170 countries, I think somebody else had mentioned that there's only like 180 plus. And it's been a while since I played Stack the Country, so I couldn't remember uh, exactly how many countries were where uh, for anybody who's ever played that. You get really good 
at knowing countries and where they're located, like Thailand. You know, I could spot that on a map now, which I'm not sure I could have done that for a solid portion of my life. Yeah, no, that's right. That's right. Knowing that there's a Georgia in the in the Caucasus as well as a state in in, uh, in the United States is uh, yeah, it's part of the learning process, right? It is boggling to when you see how many countries exist in in the content of Africa, right? And you know when you think about the growth perspective of of the planet and where America sits on that plane, right? We're not growing as rapidly as some of these other marketplaces. It seems like that is just a huge opportunity that you're you're tapped into into some of these high growth, you know, economies and countries. It it absolutely is. So so the emerging markets, if you think about their growth and their demand for vehicles, for affordable vehicles, as economies are emerging, they can't afford, and there's no, there's no new car manufacturing going on in most of these places. So their ability to source vehicles it's really expensive to buy a new car, let alone a used car. But to be able, there are entrepreneurs that we work with that have figured out how to buy vehicles, damaged vehicles in the U.S., buy the parts to fix them, put them all together or put them in a container and ship them to Accra or to Lagos. And then they've got people there that will put that car back together and create a affordable transportation for, for people who are in need of it. So it's it really is filling a need. And it, the other thing that I think about our business and vehicles that are declared a total loss, again, I didn't know anything about this industry when I first came into it. But if you asked me what happened to a total loss vehicle, I would have told you that it gets shredded, right? They kind of take the metal and they, you know, I had no idea what occurred. But, you know, 40 plus percent of the vehicles that we sell still physically operate. So it's not that they're so badly damaged that they can't even physically operate. It's really just a, it's a math problem for an insurance company. They look at the value of the vehicle before the crash. They look at the repair estimate. And if it, if the repair costs exceed some threshold that they've established, they're going to total it. So there's many, many vehicles that are still physically operate and, you know, could be operated with some, some relatively minor cosmetic repair. And there's again buyers all over the world that have figured out how to how to take advantage of that and run businesses around it. You know, we talked a little bit about that total recovery, right? Like all the things that are going on with the last year, and we talked a little bit about RVs, right? And the uh, the impact on RVs of like people driving and getting out and using these, where the the RV rental places were were empty and right. just raising rates like it's going on now. I can say firsthand because I. I know what it took to rent to go on like a hockey tournament. And now last year to rent one was, uh, it was an entirely different, uh, you know, magnitude of cost. So uh, the impact of those, how how are you guys seeing that manifest with, with your business? Yeah, I mean, RVs are, a, it's a, again, a relatively small percentage of the overall car park, but certainly we sell, that's part of that specialty vehicle that we talked about. And, you know, the other, good thing about people running those RVs and weren't used to driving them, they ran into things. So the frequency of, of damage probably went up as well. So that further supports our business. That's great. So the auction now application, how did, the, tell us the story. How did that get started? Where's it going? How do you see it? I know some of the, the features that you have built in there are some of those uh, killer app kind of things. So tell us a little bit about that, if you don't mind. Sure. So, so auction now is our 
is our marketplace. That's where buyers bid, look at and bid and, and buy vehicles through Interact, which is a kind of our overall remarketing platform. But Auction Now really was was built internally by our business technology team and first deployed in Canada. So we use Canada as our testbed. We had been using a third-party software for a number of years, worked reasonably well, but our ability to innovate and make changes quickly really was limited by having a third party. So we really thought we needed to build something ourselves, which we did. And then we had great success with it, um, was built really flexibly to allow us to enhance and add things to it quickly. Performance, very solid, you know, was really built on a, on a great foundation because we absolutely need, you know, bulletproof uh, reliability for a global platform that's running 24 seven. And it's, you know, it's, it proved itself. So once we understood that it worked and worked well, we then mapped out a plan to deploy it in the U.S., uh, which we did uh, in 2019. So that really, that really set us up in 2020 to then move to an entirely digital platform. So historically, we had run what we called a live and live online. So we were running physical auctions. If you think about an auctioneer barking out an auction, live bidders standing, raising their hands, they were interacting simultaneously with internet bidders from all over the world. But as we built auction now, began to study what our buyers' wants and needs are, as well as we began to deploy the apps that you talked about, Patrick. So part of the reason why buyers wanted to come to a sale was they wanted to hear the engine. They wanted to look really closely at the vehicle and understand the, the level of damage so that they could understand what they wanted to bid on. We effectively replaced that through our 360 view technology, which provides 360 degree uh, high quality video of the exterior and the interior of the vehicle. We provide engine start, which we basically show a little video of the engine running so that the buyer can hear that engine running and draw some conclusions about the quality of it. And then we have a thing called feature tour, which allows buyers as they're looking at the images to click on icons that will then tell them more about the capabilities of that vehicle. So we effectively had replaced a lot of the need that buyers had to physically come to our site. So it made it that much easier to move to this entirely digital platform, uh, which we successfully completed um, in April of, of 2020. And uh, yeah, it's been tremendous. The buyer feedback has been great. The engagement levels are uh, at record levels. We're really, really pleased with the deployment and, and the success we've had from it. It seems from what I've heard in various, I think, um, for want of a better term, fractured markets, like you've talked about where there's a lot of mom and pop, there's, an, there's no real big fish in the sea. I think about a lot of the, the transportation businesses in Chicago where Echo is a huge component and they're not even 10% of the market, right? And they're really, and then there's other organizations. What I find interesting and what I'm driving at it, and I'll get to a point at some point, hopefully is that there seems to be a niche you're going for of more of a discerning buyer, right? The high value. It's not so much, you know, you're going for mass transactions, but really you're providing a much higher level experience for the customer through this. I mean, there's a lot of dealerships that can't do what you're doing, right? Where you get a, a, a thorough walkthrough of, you know, this, you know, previously owned car where, there's a, you know, there's a lot of dealers that are like, oh, well, here's what one of those cars might look like. So is that part of the strategy that you're going for? Is that this high touch, uh, a little bit above, you know, they're not looking for like, oh, that one's just fine. I really want to find a good deal here. 
I think another way to think about it would be we've got buyers all over the world. So a local dealer, you can go and physically look at at a relatively low cost at a vehicle. But for us to gain the confidence of buyers in Nigeria who are only looking at pictures, we need to really deliver high quality information that's reliable, that will help them. You know, we use the term de-risk the transaction. So the more information we can provide them to give them confidence, that's really what we're about. That's why we're so uh, focused on providing the best experience for the buyers, because that's going to have them coming back and buying and bidding with confidence. And then they're going to buy the right car at the right price so that that can help them keep their business going. Because we don't want to trick somebody into paying too much for a car and then it's going to hurt their business and they're not going to be a buyer anymore. I was also very interested in in who are the buyers, right? I know that you've got a global footprint and that there's a lot of people who are in this marketplace. And what are some of the uh, reasons? What are they buying for? What are the problems that, that you're solving? In broad strokes, we have buyers who are buying the cars for parts. So they're, there's a pretty efficient industry around harvesting the good parts off of damaged vehicles and then reselling those into the repair networks, both wholesale and retail. Uh, used OEM part is much cheaper than a brand new OEM. And in many instances, repairers don't want to use aftermarket parts, so they want OEM. So a used OEM part is really valuable. And then we've got what are called rebuilders. So I talked about earlier how the number of vehicles that physically operate, that still operate, when even though they're a total loss. So there are businesses that are built around buying the vehicles, doing the repair to it, and then reselling it in a retail environment with a branded title. So think about being able to buy a sixty or $80,000 high-profile car that you can buy for half that amount, but it has a branded title on it. It's been It's been rebuilt, it's been certified, and it's a way to, again, uh, find more affordable transportation. And then you've got the export markets, which we've talked a little bit, which is a a bit of a hybrid, probably more on the rebuilder side, but there's also parts needs in these these emerging markets as well. And then at the very low end, you do have the scrap element. So even once you've you've harvested the parts that you need off that vehicle, there's going to be some steel, aluminum scrap value that that's got some sort of terminal value that that scrap buyers are buying to harvest the metal and reuse in other uh, applications. One of the other things I, I'd like to pivot a little bit onto leadership, your vision. I mean, given um, I think everybody's been affected by the pandemic. I don't think that's an earth-shattering statement by any measure. But uh, specifically, you know, your fit in the marketplace is, is impacted by the amount that people are driving. Mm-hmm. And I guess, how are you setting a vision for your organization when there's still a lot of questions about what are the new patterns? Right. So, you know, we obviously track it very closely and are looking at to understand what the trends are. There has been so much change and how much of it is permanent, how much is temporary. But, you know, for every mile that's not being traveled by a commuter, we've got people that are substituting uh, public transportation for a car, people that aren't flying, they're driving. So, you know, when you look at the overall miles driven, it's not down as much as we might think when we think about, you know, we're working remotely and not driving back and forth to the office anymore. So 
you know, it's going to play out. We'll see what permanent effects there are. But if we look at the longer term trends, we still believe that it's going to be there's going to be continued growth in cars and in uh, miles driven for a variety of reasons as the economy comes back and grows. And then, yeah, sorry, one more thing. You also have the delivery. I mean, you know, so there's a lot more delivery miles being traveled now as people, they're not driving to the grocery store, but someone's buying their groceries and driving to their house. I mean, that's, there's still a car being traveling those miles. It's just a different, it's a different driver. Um, so that's, that's just one more thing that's, that's offsetting the miles traveled. And then the other big factor that has played out over a longer term, and we don't see it changing as a result of the pandemic, has to do with what's called the total loss frequency. So the percentage of vehicles that are in an accident that ultimately get declared a total loss, that ratio has been rising pretty consistently over the last seven or eight years. And we don't see that trend changing. And and that's a function of that math uh, problem that I talked about earlier, where insurance companies are looking at the pre-crash value and then the repair costs to fix that car. Well, those repair costs there's labor, labor rates continue to go up in, in auto repair, and then just the complexity of vehicles and the parts, per, particularly on the periphery of a vehicle, they're really expensive. So that's driving up the parts value, which is leading more vehicles to be cleared a total. So that's another, what we call tailwind in our industry is that more vehicles are being uh, declared a total if they are in an accident. So from a CEO strategic vision process, could you tell us how you go about setting a vision for, for your organization and and some of the things that you've learned that uh, have really helped define that process for you? Yeah, you know, I'm I'm very much around my team. I'm not a, you know, I don't really believe in the notion of a visionary CEO. I think that good CEOs call upon the collective expertise of their team and their advisors, and then use that to forge a strategy. And that's really how I have approached it and will continue to. You know, I've got a good, bright team that thinks about this, and we we get together on a formal basis to work through it. We have an innovation team. Um, we actually have a presence at 1871 where we've got a team that's constantly looking at what is emerging in auto and in, in technology that we can deploy we go through ideation sessions with various groups to try and come up with with how we should be thinking about and what kind of the art of the possible is. And then we, that then feeds into our strategy as we, as we begin to think about longer term and, and a broader view of our market than just the, you know, kind of the historical process of selling vehicles. And I guess, uh, what are you seeing as you, as you work with your team? What are some of the things that, uh, that, it's going through your head, their head. What's the color of conversation? Yeah, I mean, it's it's with the data that we gather, and we gather pretty unique data. You know, the selling of damaged vehicles and the, the photographs and the other information we have about it, it's a unique data set. So being able to use that to help buyers and sellers make better decisions about buyers about what they should buy and what they should pay for it, sellers, what a vehicle's worth, right? What that damaged vehicle is worth as they think about how they're even going to total a vehicle. Uh, it leads all the way back into how they do underwriting once they understand how claims aggregate. And then even at a 
practical level when they're selling vehicles in our through our platform, what's the appropriate selling price? If if I think this vehicle's worth five thousand dollars and our data tells the seller that it's probably worth four, if the selling if we get buyers that are bidding forty two hundred for the vehicle, we're gonna tell that, that seller it's time to sell, even though they have this notion in their head they need to get to some higher number, which is kind of how it worked in the past where there'd be this tug and pull about, well, I want to run it again. I want to sell it again. I want to try in a different venue. But using our data to help them be more efficient and make better decisions. And then back to the buyer, the other thing that I think is really interesting is we now are capturing buyer behavior. We know what vehicles they're hovering over. We know what vehicles they're bidding on. We know what vehicles they came in second on in an auction. So we've got the ability now to serve up based on how they're behaving, serve up, here's some vehicles you probably are interested in. And we've already seen that that leads to changes of behavior like it like it does in so many other uh, e-commerce uh, uh, businesses, right? We're, we're really beginning to take advantage of that in a meaningful way. And we've got a, you know, a number of other initiatives around that. So it's really transitioning from being an auction to really an e-commerce company. That's really what we are. Uh, it's a niche, but we are an e-commerce company. And so all the things that we can bring to bear to help make that a, a better process for for all, it's, it's going to lead to greater levels of success. One of the questions I like to ask people is, you know, what's the one thing that you think is going to have the biggest impact in the future? You know, uh, like we talked about, right? You know, uh, one word, plastics. What is What is your one word today? Today, I would say it's electrification. I, I think electric vehicles... I do think that's going to be a a change in the type of vehicles that are being driven. And I think it's going to affect our business because the makeup, the composition of a vehicle is going to be different. It's going to be much more about the battery and that battery technology as there's fewer moving parts in an electric vehicle than there are in a traditional combustion engine uh, vehicle. I think that's, and it's something we're, we're very invested in and focused on is to really understand that. You know, they're much further ahead in, in Europe and certainly in the UK where we have a presence. So we're seeing it unfold much more rapidly than, than it is in the US at this point. But I do think that's, and I, I think that's important because we've gotten a lot of questions over the last couple of years around autonomous vehicles. When we first came out and spun out, you know, that was a question we would get every meeting with an analyst or an investor was, you know, how is that going to be the demise of your business? And and we would take them through why we don't think that's even a near-term or short-term concern just because of all the things around it. And, and I think we've been even proven right in the last couple of years with, with the, some of the things that have happened around autonomous vehicles. It just makes it hard to deploy on a scale. But electric vehicles, I do think, is coming faster. And I think there's... Um, that's just something we're going to need to really pay attention to, and we have been, and we, you know, we're going to be ready to help form how those vehicles get remarketed and help again buyers and sellers. Out. John, are you looking at buying an, uh, an electric car, or do you have one? I don't have one today. It's interesting to say that, Patrick. I, I we just did put um, solar panels on our roof uh, nice. in the fall, and. Um, you know, we have a great house that's southern facing and and we had them add extra panels so that potentially we could use it to charge an electric vehicle. So that's 
I'm not a car guy. I tend to drive cars until I don't need them anymore. And uh, so I'm not in the market today, but I certainly could uh, could see myself going that way for a lot of reasons. I uh, I told my wife I wanted to buy the Cybertruck. Uh-huh. And she's like, I showed her the picture and she's like, why? And I'm like, well, because of the impending apocalypse. Clearly. <laughs> right. And she's like, you're an idiot. And then there was an actual video with uh, Elon Musk. And they're like, so why did you make the windows bulletproof? He goes, because of the apocalypse. And I'm like, I'm not alone in my theories. But I think, uh, or either that or Elon knows his target market, probably the That's latter. That's probably more the, yeah. Yeah, the former, not the yeah. latter. But right. uh, you did mention earlier on when we were talking about uh, the advantage and uh, how you use yeah. uh, that book as a, uh, one of the tools in your, in your leadership bag, what other areas, what other books would you recommend for people who are looking to, to lead a team, lead a, a, a division, lead a, a section? Uh, what are some of those uh, elements of, of your education as a leader that you think other people would, would appreciate hearing about? Yeah. You know, I, I, I love history. So I, I read a lot of history. So I think there's a lot of parallels in, in a lot of different environments you know, I read about political leaders. I read about other CEOs, right? Because you can learn things about how businesses run and how people think about how to run a business. You know, I'm a product of a very blue collar family, you know, youngest of four boys, first one to go to college. My parents were, you know, blue collar. You know, I didn't, I didn't have a business advisor or mentor as a young man. So I really did have to kind of learn things on my own. Um, so I, I do, I do enjoy reading again, business books, but again, I think there's plenty of parallels in crisis management and in leadership when you, you know, read about strong historical political figures, whether it's, whether it's military or, um, government. I mean, I'm a big Churchill fan. You know, I, I've read a lot of books by him. He's a fascinating character, plenty of flaws, but, but you know, in times of crisis, certainly um, uh, had the ability to, to rally the troops. So um, that's that's one that I have spent some time with. I read a great book about Alan Mulally when he came to Ford. I thought it was just absolutely fascinating um, how he really transformed that business. So, yeah, that's, I, I, I think a variety is, some people seem to get fixated on business books, and I think that you're better off broadening your horizons across a variety of leaders. What was the what was uh, Mulally's books? What was the name of that book? Do you remember? I, I have it on my phone. I, I'll get it to you. I don't remember it off the top of my head, but I'll get it to you. I feel terrible all of a sudden because my kids ask me all these questions where they're like, "Hey, Dad, what's this?" While they're holding a phone, right? And it's like. You've got the universe of information in your hand no, and you're and, asking me, right? Well, actually, Patrick, I have it because I have a list of all the books I read. So I know it's on that list. That's why I'm, that's why I, I have it closer than just hitting Google. One of my favorites on uh, Mulally's story is that uh, when he started and started getting, I'm a big meeting person. I think meetings are a critical element of like successful businesses and there was somebody who was a holdover from a previous regime who wasn't coming to his Monday meetings. And yeah, 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 yeah. Mo ran him into in the hallway and he's like, Hey, uh, I saw that you, you've missed the past couple of meetings. And he's like, yeah, I'm probably not going to be at a whole lot of them. And Mo Ali, response was, well, uh, I appreciate that. And we can still be friends, but uh, you're not going to work here anymore. <laughs> right, exactly. Right. 
Right. And uh, that kind of accountability is, uh, I think, one of those key metrics on leadership of being very clear, right? Same thing in the book about the advantage, right? It's That's being right. very clear about your expectations and uh, not taking it personal. You know, you just, you're not going to live here anymore. That's right? right. There's other places. And, you know, as opposed to in previous times in America, when losing a job in many industries meant, you know, a real jeopardy for, for the family, right? Now it, it it doesn't really constitute that big a jeopardy, especially at that level where it's like, right. you'll right. find another job. But right. so um, it's, um, it's not like. American Icon is the name of the book. American Icon. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well. I appreciate you sharing your experience and what's going on. Uh, it's really exciting. It's it's great that uh, such a success is here in Chicago and in the Chicagoland area, and that uh, you know we're 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 hoping pulling for you and, and looking looking forward to seeing even more great things. Um, so I wanted to say thanks for for taking the time to to talk with us today. I, I really enjoyed it, and yeah, I mean, we are committed to Chicago. I, you know, I've lived here my whole life, so you know, I've got a vested interest in the success of our business, not just for the the obvious, but I, I do think it's part of the vibrancy of of our market. So, no, really glad to be here. Enjoyed it very much. Thank you, thank you. Uh, we also want to thank our listeners. We really appreciate everyone taking the time to join us. And if you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published, you can subscribe by visiting our website at dragonspears.com slash podcast, or find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, this episode was sponsored by Dragon Spears and produced by Dante32. 